Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Good morning and welcome to today's Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss. Jazz Shapers, it's where I bring you the shapers of the business world together with the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is Asma Khan, founder, chef and owner of the Indian restaurant Darjeeling Express in London. As a child growing up in Calcutta, Asma loved food, but she hadn't learned to cook despite being always in the kitchen, she says, with her mother, who owned a catering business. After moving to the UK in 1991 to join her academic husband, homesickness drove Asma to return temporarily to India to learn how to craft the royal Mughlai dishes of her childhood. Forever rejecting her second daughter stigma, which we'll find out more about shortly, and after qualifying as a lawyer, Asma's passion for food led her to set up clandestine supper clubs in her Kensington flat, much to the annoyance of her two boys. These led to a pop-up in a Soho pub and then to the restaurant Darjeeling Express, which opened its doors in 2017 with an all-women team running the kitchen. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. When I see you immediately, I I lived in India many years ago. Tell me what you're wearing, which sounds a ridiculous thing to say. such a facile and superficial thing to say, but it's, it's beautiful. Just give me, I mean, I'm not even kidding. You're looking at me going, why is he asking me what I'm wearing? No, it's important because this is, I, I wear a kurta, which normally you wear the shalwar or a churidar. This is a traditional outfit in South Asia. A lot of people, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh wear it. And I've been in this country 30 years. When I tell people they stare at the clothes because this is what I wear every day. So I just didn't dress up for you. No, I figured. I wear this at work. I wear it in all events I go. And uh, it is part of my identity. This is very much, you know, what makes me feel comfortable. And not everything of my culture, my identity, my faith, I can live with. But the things that are close to me, that I feel fit in with my skin, I will wear it. I will do it. So outfit is one of them, you know. I just feel better wearing clothes that I grew up, you know, wearing uh, when I was in India. You're here. Your restaurant is here. There's a myriad of other things that you do that are here. But where are you in your head, Asma, before we get on to the the business? Are you still in India? Yes, I am in India. And if anyone tapped me from the back and said, where's your home? I would still say Calcutta. And that is strange because it's been decades since I left. I have spent more years in this country than I have in India. But, you know, my roots go down so deep across the oceans to that land. And I feel very connected. And increasingly, because of the politics of what's happening in India, where people's identity, you know, is linked to their faith, to their name, to the color of their skin, I think it's so important to still feel, you may not think I belong there. My heart and soul is there. I live there, I breathe there. And, you know, I've said this in many occasions, you know, where, you know, people walk through the old lanes of Delhi and the dust that flies from Jama Masjid, which is the oldest mosque over there, that touches your lips. That's the dust of ancestors, my ancestors, my clan. And this is, this is where I belong. And even when I walk, the soil recognizes me. 
I feel like you should be writing a book as you're speaking, but we can't write the book right now because we're, we're talking about you and we're talking about identity. Tell me about food and where food fits in to your identity and what the purpose of bringing your food to life has been over the years here in the UK. I realized very early on that food was my way home. When I was so homesick in Cambridge, I struggled. But when I learned to cook, you know, after I'd come back from India, Ammu had taught me how to cook, my aunts had taught me how to cook, my old family cook had given me all the family recipes. Strangely enough, I learned all the complicated things. You know, obviously I hung around in the kitchen, so I did in my head know how to cook. But physically, I'd never cooked before. I came back and I could cook everything. But in the aromas of that small Cambridge kitchenette, I felt the presence of my mother next to me. In those spices, I heard the music in the old radio that Ammu would listen to, you know, Kishore Kumar, you know, Lata Mangeshkar, Hemant Kumar. I heard the music. I felt her presence. And then I realized that, you know, if this can happen to me, that I feel transformed away from this ivory tower and this university town back to my home kitchen, I'm going to feed other people because this way I will heal them too. I will take them wherever their home is, but I wanted to cook, not for myself. Mm. I wanted to feed people. We're going to talk a lot more about this. You just reminded me, Kishore Kumar, is it Rupatana yeah. Mastana? Yes. Which I are, love that song. It was one of the, my favorite songs. It's, a, it's an absolute gem. If you haven't heard of Kishore Kumar, go look him up. He's extraordinary. In the intro, I talked about these clandestine dinners, and you talked about, I just wanted to feed people, and you talked about so many more things, dust and soil and so many evocative things. When you started to feed people, did you feel more at home yourself? Yes. I felt empowered because I went through this long stage of feeling rootless, uh, worthless, uh, disconnected from this land where I'd moved to, trying to make friends with the person I'd married, trying to understand this culture. Just explain you, the marriage bit, bit yes, so, yes. You, so people understand. Yes. I mean, and I want to clarify because a lot of people get confused between an arranged marriage and a forced marriage. Mm. I happily married my husband. This was arranged as in, you know, when you go on online dating, you meet up someone, someone connects up with you. And, you know, it was one of those things where I always told my mother, I did not want to marry a feudal royal person. That's exactly who I should have married because of my background. So just to be clear, Asma is actually royalty. Yes. Of, yeah. In generations. In of generations. Royalty. And yes. And I was terrified to get married to some kind of feudal, you know, person. And I, I wanted a liberal, educated person. And there someone found this, this very liberal economist teaching at Cambridge University. The first thing I told him is that I don't know how to cook. He told me I don't believe in gender roles. I will look after you. I will cook for you. Didn't tell me he was such a mediocre cook. <laughs> and only knew one thing. And also, he ate every meal in college, left me to eat alone. And in my life, I'd never eaten a single meal on my own. And a lot of people who have Indian, Asian heritage can understand that. Mealtimes, no one will let you eat alone. You eat with a whole group of people. And there I was eating the same chicken curry for one week that he had made <laughs> and put in the fridge for me. And yeah, so that was my arranged marriage. And you talked when I asked the question about did it make you feel at home? Yes, it, it did. And at what point did you realize these informal clandestine things that were then moving on through the years? was going to become something a bit more of a you know, permanent fixture. You, you had a pop-up restaurant, didn't you, first? Yes. And I, obviously that went pretty well. That went very well. And initially I started off 
doing these little kind of secret restaurants, clandestine meetings in my house, only for hunger charities. I worked with charities that were feeding children in war zones and working in refugee camps. And I did that because I felt that there's a, you know, this is a very Indian thing, that you must start in an auspicious way. And I felt that to feed the hungry would be important, but I also lacked confidence. I didn't think anyone would pay to eat at my house. And I felt that if they felt they were donating the entire money to a charity and they didn't like my food, they wouldn't tell me. But then I figured out that this was getting really popular. People seemed really like they loved the food and they wanted to come back and bring their family and bring their partners. And then these families, Indian, not Indian, English, all sorts? All sorts, all sorts. And, you know, it was really very mixed. And a lot of people who were interestingly from backgrounds where they immediately recognized what I used to always hear is I felt I went home. And I used to look at them, they don't look like anything like anyone who would be in my house. But there was something in the way that the food was cooked and that I sat and told stories, took everybody back to a time where, you know, they may have been children, they went to grandparents' place. This whole idea of eating together with loved ones in our mad rat race of adulthood, we'd forgotten that meal that we used to eat. Many years later, someone left a note on my table in my restaurant, and I don't know who it was. I suspect it was that gentleman eating on his own. He said, I ate this meal, I wept, I cried for a home that I've forgotten existed, and now I want to go back home. And, you know, I cried so much because this is what food can do. Food and music are the two things that take you back to a time that you, even you, had forgotten. Mm. And then the memories come back and, you know, and I had this, you know, the joy of cooking, seeing the eyes of people eating, very hard to explain. It lifted me up. I felt that now my life was worth something. And that is why I'm still cooking, because I feel in some ways that I have some value in this world. Maybe it is the scars I carry from the way that, you know, I was born and the way my birth was received. But to be worthwhile, to be meaningful, was something that really mattered to me. And in cooking, I could do both. Stay with me for much more from my fabulous business shape today. It's Asma Khan. She's the chef and the owner of Darjeeling Express. Right now, though, we're going to hear a taster from the Mishcon Academy digital sessions. They can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Mishcon Derez, Victoria Pickett and Dr. Rebecca Newton, organisational psychologist and CEO of Coach Advisor, discuss the impact of women in positions of leadership and on boards. The Mishcon Academy digital sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. Do you think there's anything specific that we can do to prevent the impact that many women find maternity leave has on their career trajectory? Yes, and I think some organisations do this very well. There's the question of, is this about having taken maternity leave or is this a question of having X amount of time out of the business in terms of your momentum? I'd say the pre-work that you do before maternity leave, like planning how things will work when a woman wants to come back to work and how that will work and and to be strategic about 
as quickly as possible rebuilding that momentum is important. The other thing that which is important for for women who are going on maternity leave, but it's also important for people around them to understand is you don't actually know how you're going to feel about coming back to work until you're in that position and until you are deciding when to come back to work and and after you've, you know, had the baby and started maternity leave. So I just encourage organisations to make sure that this isn't just box ticking of the kind of return to work plan and things, but having meaningful conversations with women as individuals, making sure that we are as flexible as possible, clear that we are as supportive as possible, that we're excited to have them back and want to do everything that we can in order to support them as they regain momentum with their work and and their business. And the other reason this is important to do is that increasingly men are taking longer periods of paternity leave as well. So this isn't just a women's issue. This is something for all parents and for other people as well. I think there's things where people want to step out and take periods of time away from their work. And, you know, the more flexible we can be as leaders in an organization, you know, we're more likely to create environments where there is real mutual trust and respect and and you're likely to keep the best people or to have them come back to have them be successful in the organization. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again with Asma if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. Or if you've got a smart speaker and you ask it to play Jazz Shapers, you'll be greeted with a taster of our recent shows. But back to today and Asma Khan, founder, chef and owner of the Indian restaurant Darjeeling Express in London. And their food is described, and I'm quoting here, as a true homage to Asma's royal Mughlai ancestry and the busy streets of Calcutta. You said a couple of things I want to pick up on. I think you're right about food and eating together, and it is, I mentioned I lived in India. When I lived there, it would have been unheard of to eat on your own or not to share, actually. And that's the other thing that you just do in that in that culture. Of course you share whatever you've got, you offer. Yeah, That's that part. But the eating together thing, it feels that's what those people were coming for because probably they had been sitting there with the warmed-up chicken curry or the warmed-up whatever it was that someone made. How do you keep the space for yourself in terms of your own sanity? If you're, if you're always in an environment where there's lots of people and where you're naturally hospitable, what if you're not feeling like talking to people and you're there? Or is it so ingrained in who you are that it doesn't even, there's not even a thought process that comes that way? I think it's very ingrained in me. I think that I always will seek out people if I'm alone, I find being alone uncomfortable, unusual. This is, you know, in India, I remember waking up in the middle of the night, seeing random aunts sleeping in some mattress because they missed their train. There is no concept of privacy in Indian homes. Uh, you know, everybody shares, everybody's together, everybody interferes hugely in what's happening in your life. Everyone has an opinion on you know, what you're wearing, what you're doing. It can be oppressive, but, you know, I always stepped back and took this and let it wash over. Because a lot of the things that were being said to me, everybody else found very uncomfortable. I would not let it penetrate through to me because this was often about the way I looked, the color of my skin, my body shape, the fact that everyone was so worried who would marry me. So all of this, you know, it was quite 
surprising when you look back that people thought this was okay to tell you don't walk in the sun, you're dark enough, you know, don't don't eat that because you're fat enough. You know, it was said in such a casual way, yet I look back and I'm really impressed at what I was then, what I am now and what I will be in the future because I learned at a very young age that, you know, there is a core of me that I will one day become something. And everything that's happening around me is going to wash away. And everybody one day will know my name. I will become something, or set the world on fire. Because I realized that the more you push me down, the more I will rise. It didn't affect me at mm. all. So it wasn't that, you know, I was like getting affected by this, but I was so aware of that was happening everywhere around that people needed space. And so it was the fact that in that storm, I bent, but I did not break. But everybody else was suffering. So it was very strange. You know, I needed to be with people because I needed to see what was happening to other people. There's an interesting contradiction in something you said, which is the then you've talked about feeling worthwhile. And really what we're talking about now is your, your purpose in life and the fact that you you got more strength than more people said, dah, you're too this, you're too that, you're not enough, all that stuff. I read somewhere that you said, and this, this is the contradiction for me or the question, you miss India. Yeah. In your head you're in India, and yet you said this apparently, I could only have become what I have become because I lived in London. I couldn't have done this in Calcutta, an all-female kitchen of housewives, they don't exist in the East, but I could do anything I wanted to in London. I could be anyone I wanted. Yeah. So... This dichotomy between where you are now and not feeling at home and yet becoming the person you've become because you couldn't be that person over there. Just help me navigate that. I know. This is a strange, uh, you know, uh, dilemma when you look at it and think, you know, that would you rather be in India? No. I miss India. This is my spiritual home. My roots are there. I am nourished. I have sustenance from the soil and the culture, the music, the rhythm the aromas of home. But it's absolutely true. I would have been crushed. We would have been shut down. We would never have been allowed to have an all-female restaurant. The men would have stood outside and asked my women leaving late at night, how are you going to go home? What are you doing with your life? Here, the thing is that you know, people ask me, you know, what, do you have an Indian passport? Do you have a British passport? I'm a Londoner. My identity is to the city. I belong to the city, the city belongs to me. So if it is about countries, then it is India. But there is something about London. And you know, I, I always say, London, Mary John. London is my heartbeat. London is my love. Because the thing is, you know, it, it, it allowed us the space to have a restaurant like this. You can be anything you want in London. And you know, when I, when I would tell people that I want to open a restaurant and they said, who's going to do the cooking? I said, all these housewives. And they said, oh, they're not professional. And I realized that, you know, this comes from our huge, huge bias. Because in every home you go to in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, it is a woman cooking. The moment it is about medium range, high end, fine dining, in India or in the West, it's men. And London was going to allow me to be free, that I could do this. But I still feel this is a place where I live and I thrive. But home for me still is Calcutta. And I have that right 
to be in love with two cities. Hmm. Because, you know, I will not allow anyone to tell me, you have to pick. I won't. <laughs> I love you, Asra Khan. Asra Khan's my business shape here. Founder, chef, and pretty iconic, I think. It's pretty, pretty clear what she thinks, and no one's going to be telling her what to think, and that's a good thing. I just want to add a few accolades here for you, because people won't know this. First chef to be featured in Vogue's 25 Most Influential Women of the Year just last year. Number one on Business Insider's list of 100 coolest people in food of drink, listed as one of London's most influential people in the evening standards, Progress 1000, and it, it could go on. Oh, you're also one of Britain's 101 most influential Asians. This fire in your belly and, the, and in your eyes, does it grow? Well, why does it grow, I guess? You, you talked about this journey you're on and you know that you will be something, and I think you mean that in the least ego possible way yeah. ever. Like, you're going to have impact, yes. which is positive. I see that. Where's that growth in the belief that that's going to happen coming from asthma? I think it came from feeling that I was being sidelined and dismissed. The need was to prove not just for myself. I could not have driven myself because, you know, the list that you're just reading out, everyone is only seeing my success. Mm. No one has seen my failures. They haven't seen the doors that were closed on me, the isolation, the abandonment, the fact that there was no chair on the table for me. I've been through all of that in darkness before the world found out who I was. How did you deal with the darkness? I waited for the light. I knew it was going to come. I waited for dawn. Night will always be broken with dawn. And I knew the light would come. Are you a patient person? No. So this is why I worked very hard. I worked very hard to get out of there. In the situations where I felt I was being marginalized and being dismissed and not being given an opportunity, I did all I could. And then I used words, I used language. And I'm very grateful. A lot of people have told me, what a waste that you studied law. I have to say, I'm grateful for having studied law, that I'm grateful to having done a legal PhD. It taught me how to be concise with words, that every word that you say, you, you wait, you understand that there's an impact in what you speak. And what you say, the spoken word is very important. And, you know, I, I talk myself mm. to where I am to some extent. And the fact that I did three years of you know, legal education and wrote a PhD taught me how to cut back on all the faff and be true to what you have to say. The message is very important. The message is important. The food is important. The restaurant's important. The mission to say, excuse me, I'm not going to dismiss you, women. You're going to all work over here. We're going to do something special. Is business important in the context of all the things I've just said? Or is, is it more important that you are impacting the world positively? I'm just trying to suss out the commercial part of you. Because yeah. evidently you can, you know, you're very smart. You can do anything you want to do. But what, what's driving you? My sense is it's not the commercial endeavor. Or do you see the commercial endeavor as a platform upon which you can then use to all the other things? I think that is not a priority, but it's very important to succeed in business. You know, you cannot survive. Otherwise, you know, you're like these tree-hugging activists. Nothing wrong with being that. But you have to be able to make it work. And I had to practice in front of the mirror to say, I'm very successful. I found that very hard because I just thought, oh my God, that is like, you know, such a big ego to be able to say that. I learned to say that. Because in my accented voice, as an immigrant Muslim, 
as a woman who's 52. I want others who are listening to this, hear my voice and understand it could be them. In my voice, find your voice. And for that, I have to succeed as a business. I cannot be some loss-making fringe somewhere on some corner trying to, you know, I might as well stand on speaker's corner and speak. The impact really is to show that you can be good and good guys can win and you don't need to be ruthless. You don't need to crush everything around you. I think there's a very positive part of being in business when there is a motive, an emotion, there is something that drives it because that in the really dark days and everyone who's in business knows they will come. They come, they go. That was what will allow you to pick yourself up and face the next hurdle. When you have fallen on the first hurdle, you know there are more ahead. But you'll get up and go because then the business becomes a side issue and your passion takes over. But they have to exist side by side. It's neither either or. I don't think that that will work. Stay with me for my final chat today with Asma Khan and we've got some typically lively New Orleans blues from Professor Longhair. That's in just a moment. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Asma Khan is my business shaper, but not for very much longer. I just want to think about the future for a moment and you. We've talked a lot about the incredibly powerful memories of food, your, your mission to feel at home when you're here, even though India is your home, but you love here for what it's given you and, and all that. If we were having this conversation in 20 years and you were looking back, what would you hope your legacy had been? That's a really good question. I think I would hope that people would understand that you don't separate food and culture. For many of us, food is part of our DNA. And because it's part of our DNA, we're unaware of how sacred it is. Food is sacred. So is my culture. And I've said this to a lot of people in my restaurant. I will not let you hate me because of my name, because of the color of my skin, my accented voice. And I think food is a bridge that we should all use to connect people. So I hope my legacy would be of the bridge between people where food was used as a language of love, but food was also used as a battle cry for justice and equality. And the fact that, you know, you don't push me aside. You don't just take my food. I will not let you take my food and not take me. You've got to listen to what I have to speak about. You've got to hear the stories about my women, about my culture. And this is true for many communities beyond my own community where we all fit in and we all seem very successful and have done great things in our lives. But people need to know your history and your stories and understand that they cannot just dislike you because they're ignorant. And, you know, I, I, I would hope that that would be the legacy, that I was the storyteller who told the stories of the East together with the food. It's been amazing listening to you. Thank you. I feel very privileged, actually. I've, I've really, really enjoyed that. And it's got me thinking about all sorts of things. But the next thing I'm thinking of is actually what your song choice is, which is very banal here on Chess Shapers, but it's important nevertheless. So, Asma, what is your song choice? Well, my song choice, it? I wanted to end on a very positive note because Good. I think that, you know, it should always be uplifting. And, you know, it's Nina Simone, Feeling Good. I love the song. Nina Simone with Feeling Good, the song choice of my business shaper today, Asma Khan. 
Fundamentally, she said that food was my way home. It was her way of feeling like she was in India. It was her way of feeling good about who she was. The importance of eating together, just don't forget that. That's what she talked about. It's so critical in these incredibly busy and stressful times. I waited for the light, she said, when it came to dealing with